Howdy, this is Natalie Bublitz, PGY1 at Texas A&M University, and this is Clinical Pearls. Pre-pregnancy diabetes represents one of the most challenging medical complications of pregnancy because of the need for frequent monitoring and adjustment of medications as well as the potential for maternal and fetal complications. Similarly, gestational diabetes is the most common medical complication of pregnancy, followed by hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The rate of gestational diabetes has continued to increase in the U.S. over the last decade. Currently, gestational diabetes affects about 1 in 10 pregnant women, or about 10% of all pregnancies. Interestingly, as your first clinical pearl, gestational diabetes accounts for about 90% of all cases of diabetes in pregnancy. For those women with pre-pregnancy diabetes, pregnancy has been associated with exacerbation of diabetes-related complications, particularly retinopathy and nephropathy. Poorly controlled pregestational diabetes leads to serious and organ damage. They may eventually become life-threatening. It also raises the possibility of maternal complications like DKA. In turn, pre-existing diabetes-related and organ damage can also have deleterious effects on the OB outcomes. We all know, of course, that major congenital anomalies are the leading cause of perinatal mortality in all pregnancies complicated by pregestational diabetes, and they occur anywhere from about 5 to 10% of infants in women with diabetes. Studies have linked the increased rate of congenital malformations, as well as spontaneous abortion, to poor pre-pregnancy glycemic control. That's why it's important for all pregestational diabetics, ideally, to have preconceptual counseling. Now, historically, Priscilla White pioneered research into diabetic women in pregnancy, and this led to the White classification being used to assess diabetes risk in a current pregnancy. The classification was based on age of onset of diabetes, duration of disease, and or the presence of end organ damage. Now, the question is, even though Priscilla White first published some of these landmark papers back in the 1930s and 1950s, well, is a White classification still relevant today? Well, while there's strong proponents for it, and I have to be honest and transparent, I was one of those. I was one of those up until the last one or two years when more and more data started coming out that, well, the white classification may be a little antiquated and there may be a more contemporary and easier to remember nomenclature. So in this session, we're going to cover the white classification. Still relevant? Let's find out now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. I love the history of obstetrics and I love the history of medicine in general because, you know what, you just really appreciate where you are once you've looked back and figure out where you've been. Priscilla White is a landmark. She is a legend in obstetrics, but she goes way back all the way until the 1920s. Priscilla White was first hired by Dr. Elliot Proctor Jocelyn to work at the Jocelyn Clinic in 1924. There, she began her work on examining diabetes, and at that time, it was ravaging the care and the health of pregnant women and children. 
1932, White published Diabetes in Children and Adolescents. This was her first major contribution to the diabetes literature. Now, regarding diabetes in pregnancy, the White classification was developed by Priscilla White in 1949 and officially accepted for publication and released in 1950. This classification was used to estimate the risk of, quote, perinatal wastage, end quote, in pregnancies complicated by diabetes. She concluded that pregnancy complications could be predicted by maternal factors like disease duration, age of onset, and the presence or absence of vascular complications like, quote, transitory, end quote, hypertension or retinopathy or nephropathy. Of course, heart disease was also there in the classification of vascular complications. In the 1980s, a revision was made to the original classification. Now, don't worry, we're going to go through the Priscilla White, the White classification in detail here in just a minute. But I want you to realize that there's been several flavors of this that really never became popular. In 1980 came the first major proposed revision, and this classified the system into those with chronic hypertension or not. In other words, the previously existing Class D designation, again, we're going to get into that in just a minute, was revised in 1980 to include those with chronic hypertension. Now, wait a minute. If you're thinking, wait a minute, Class D in the white classification doesn't include chronic hypertension. And, well, you're right, because that 1980 proposed revision just never really took hold because the medical community and even high-risk physicians elected to keep those two things separate. Yes, vascular complications are a big deal, but those are part of end-organ damage, like retinopathy or nephropathy. We're going to talk about that work up in a minute. Whereas chronic hypertension is a whole separate issue that also increases morbidity, but was thought to not be included in the Class D designation, so it was really left off. Now, again, we're going to talk about the white classification in more detail and go through those letters, but since we're talking about Class D now, let's talk about what most people remember Class D to be, and that's based on its original description. Class D included those with pre-gestational diabetes who had age of onset younger than age 10 or duration over 20 years. Class D does include background benign retinopathy. Now, here's an interesting clinical pearl and an interesting part of history. The original intent of the white classification was to risk stratify those with pre-pregnancy diabetes, and it had nothing to do with gestational diabetes. In other words, those who failed their glucose tolerance screen in pregnancy were never intended to live in the white classification. But gestational diabetes later found its home in the class A designation. The Class A, originally written and described by Priscilla White, included those that had pre-gestational diabetes but who had no end organ damage, no hypertension, and who could be successfully treated by diet or nutritional care alone. Yep, the original designation was that Class A diabetes, according to Priscilla White, was pre-gestational treated by diet. Of course, now we use the A designation to imply those diagnosed first during pregnancy or gestational diabetes. It's now subdivided into those treated by diet alone or those requiring medication, traditionally called A1 for nutritional therapy alone, and then A2 for those that require medication, either metformin 
or insulin. And yes, insulin is still the gold standard, but pretty much in common practice, most are using metformin because it's easier to administer, easier to adjust, and less invasive than insulin. And yes, as I've said before, don't worry, we're going to go through the designations again as a quick reminder of what the letters mean. And there's even some misapplication of what A1 and A2 is actually supposed to be. So we'll get into that in just a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's park ourselves here in this gestational diabetes parking spot and category A designation just for a moment because I want to kind of set the record straight here. Remember that gestational diabetes can be classified as either A1 or A2. Now, while some institutions use A1 or A2 classification based on how the patient fails traditionally the two-step, three-hour glucose tolerance test, that's not how it was originally intended. Let me explain. Some institutions designate patients or diagnose patients as A1 or A2 based on how they fail that three-hour glucose tolerance test on the two-step protocol. In other words, you need two abnormal values to fail on the three-hour test to be considered gestational diabetic. Some institutions have proposed and adopted that when one of those abnormal values of the two includes the fasting, that those patients should be diagnosed as A2 diabetics. Alternatively, when the two abnormal values do not include the fasting blood value, then those patients are called A1 and are treated by diet. Now, I have to be transparent here. That's exactly how I learned A1 versus A2 based on the three-hour test and whether one of the abnormal values included the fasting or not. But actually, that's not how the A1 or A2 is actually supposed to work. See, once a patient is diagnosed as a gestational diabetic, the initial pass, according to ACOG and SMFM, is nutritional and lifestyle modification. After collecting data for one or two weeks to see how blood sugars look, which includes fasting and two hours postprandial, that's where the designation then fits in. In other words, it's based on management. Those that have their sugar contained just by nutritional and lifestyle modification are called A1. And those who fail by lifestyle modification and require medication, then they're called A2. So it shouldn't be based on the diagnostic test itself. If you fail that test, you're just called gestational diabetic. And then based on the management, based on the success of nutritional therapy at first go, then you can subdivide into A1 to A2. Well, why do some programs use that? Why do they base their designation of A1 or A2 based on that three-hour? Well, the truth is because you kind of lose one or two weeks just seeing what they do with nutritional therapy. And we know that unless the patient is very motivated, nutritional therapy is just very hard to do. So some have said in order to avoid that one to two week gap in care, even though nutritional or lifestyle interventions is actually a form of care, then those that fail the test by showing fasting hyperglycemia can move straight to medication, especially since now we have a non-invasive form of medication like metformin, while those who do not have fasting hyperglycemia can get a trial of diet. 
But once again, that's not how it was originally intended. The original intent is to designate A1 or A2 based on management after a trial of nutritional or lifestyle modification first. Okay, now that we've laid that to rest regarding gestational diabetes in class A, let's get back to the whole topic of this podcast, which is the white classification. Remember, that's for pre-pregnancy diabetes and was never really intended for gestational, but nonetheless, gestational diabetes kind of found its home as class A. And of course, it gets a little deeper than that. So here's a clinical pearl. Remember, of course, that if gestational diabetes is diagnosed early prior to 24 weeks, especially like in the first trimester, early second trimester, because you've screened based on risk factors, then those should be treated as undiagnosed pre-pregnancy diabetes because human placental lactogen can't be to blame, especially in the first trimester or early second trimester. So those who were found to fail their glucose tolerance test early in pregnancy prior to 24 weeks should be treated as pre-gestational diabetics and called pre-gestational previously undiagnosed diabetic patients. Well, let's get back to the white classification and define the classes and then figure out whether this is still relevant today or not. Remember, it's pretty easy if you consider that as you go down the letters of the alphabet in the classification, well, patients just get sicker. You've either had it for a longer time or now you have progressive worsening of some sort of vascular and organ disease. Class B includes those who were diagnosed over the age of 20 or who had diabetes for a duration of less than 10 years with no end organ issues. Class C are those who are diagnosed between the ages of 10 to 19 years of age or have had it for a duration of 10 to 19 years. Class D includes those individuals diagnosed as diabetic under the age of 10 or those who have had it for a duration greater than 20 years. Those with background benign retinopathy also fit into Class D. Remember the 1980s revision where chronic hypertension tried to make its way into Class D, but that was not universally accepted. Remember what we said, as we move down the alphabet, the sicker the patient gets. Now we get to Class R. Those include patients with proliferative retinopathy or those with vitreous hemorrhage. Class F includes those with nephropathy found on 24-hour urine, and that's defined as 500 milligrams per 24-hour collection. Then there's class H, which are those with atherosclerotic heart disease that's clinically evident. And then class T are those who've had prior renal transplantation. But here's the question. Is this classification still useful today? I got to be honest, as I mentioned before, I was a big stickler for this. I had the residents had, they had to tell me what letter our diabetic patients were at when they were pre-gestational. But is it still relevant? Because it's pretty easy to just figure out. Look, the longer you've had diabetes, and especially if you've got some vascular complication as an end organ damage, obviously that raises pregnancy risk, right? Doesn't that make sense? Well, most say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and we can do away with the letter designation. Now, before I go into this, just a quick distinction, because there is a difference between relevant and useful. I mean, it is useful, because if I say to somebody else, hey, I have a class C diabetic, that other person should ideally, hopefully, know what I'm talking about. So that's useful, because it standardizes communication. 
But relevant is something else. Because is it relevant to really memorize these classes? Well, more and more data is coming out saying, look, there's an easier way to just break this down. And we don't have to remember which letter is what if we just say what we mean. And here's what I mean. Here's the criticism of the Y classification. That stuff is old, and I never remember what letter's what. <laughs> yes, I mean, I've heard it. Look, many a medical conference that I've sat in, and many an editorial paper that I've read, that, yeah, Y classification is great, but why don't we just get rid of that and just say what we mean? Plus, a lot of the Y classes are not mutually exclusive, and even though it's kind of common sense that you would escalate based on the highest complication, it's kind of hard to figure out what's a worse complication, right? I mean, is it proliferative retinopathy or is it nephropathy? If a patient has both, where do you fit them in? That's the catch, and that's the dilemma, and that's why there's a push to simplify this for this proposal. The proposal is very simple. Let's just say what you mean. Let's call it type 1 diabetes or absolute insulin deficiency with vascular complications or without vascular complications. And if they have vascular complications, just say what they are. Like she's a type 1 diabetic with vascular complication, including nephropathy. Or she's a type 1 diabetic with vascular complications with retinopathy. Just say what she's got. Alternatively, you could say she's a type 2 diabetic. In other words, she has adult onset diabetes with or without vascular complications. And for gestational, again, just say out the description. I have a gestational diabetic who's diet controlled. Or I have a gestational diabetic on oral agents. It'd be much simpler, wouldn't it? Well, it's actually taking ground and taking movement. Now, I don't know about you, but this rings a lot of bells for me in the gynecology realm because we did away with words like menorrhagia and metromenorrhagia years ago because what did, exactly did that mean, right? Nobody could figure out what those were and was it, was it five days if it was too long, if it was eight days? And so there was a lot of non-consistency in those terms. That's why ACOG and FIGO abandoned them for the palm coin system. So now you should just say what you mean. This patient has heavy menstrual bleeding or abnormal uterine bleeding due to fibroids. She's got heavy menstrual bleeding or abnormal uterine bleeding due to the suspected polyps. I mean, that's why palm coin became an issue. And that's why palm coin became established. And we abandoned those loosey-goosey words. Well, the same is now being proposed for the Y classification. Real quick, a quick shout out to one of the Palm Coin creators, one of my mentors, this physician I learned so much from out of California, Mac Monroe. So if you are listening and you are around Mac Monroe's area, please tell him I said hello. Great man, great physician, love his research. What a pioneer in the realm of gynecology. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the white classification, its history, its designations, its definitions, and whether it's relevant or useful still today. Now, I've got to be honest, this was a hard pill for me to swallow because I was a big proponent, a big advocate of the white classification. And if you're a former resident of mine and you know I made you figure out what letter that patient was, well, I'm kind of eating my words now because I kind of like the new designation now. It's just easier and more descriptive to say what they are. So, yeah, I guess anybody can change. As always, thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your message. We're thankful for you. And we we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.